You didn't know I had a jacket, did you? He is risen today, and what a day to celebrate, amen. Praise God. I want to say an especially warm welcome. If you're visiting with us, especially for the first time, it's great to have you. And uh, we hope that you uh, just are made welcome among us and that you enjoy this time, but mostly that you experience the grace and the kindness of our King Jesus and that he changes your life for the better. It's the most significant moment in history that we celebrate today. The most significant event in all of history. Uh, the, if you do a study of the top 100 events, I, I, went, uh, I was looking at what are the biggest things that different people think happened. So there's the, there's the top 10, there's the top 100, everybody's got a different list. Depends on who they are and what vantage point they're coming from. But I looked up history's top 100 most consequential events that impacted life and humanity. And I'm just going to leave out all the issues that relate to the creation of the earth and the, the, it being made habitable for human uh, kind. And I'm going to leave out the creation of mankind. I'm just assuming we all believe in that. Um, so let's look at some of the most impactful moments of human history. The first thing is that most people agree on this is the discovery and the harnessing of fire, which this is Haswell theory. I, I think Adam had to learn how to work fire because up until that time he'd been in the garden eating fruit and stuff. And now he's, yeah, you know, he's outside, there's not so much fruit, he has to kill and eat some animals. But the, the general idea is that when, when we started using fire to heat ourselves and to cook and to do all sorts of things, that was a significant move forward. 3600 BC, we come to the invention of the wheel, which is pretty much, everybody goes, now that was a significant moment for mankind, right? And uh, so, you know, the wheel is the, is the big thing. And then, of course, the plow and the sail, the, the wheel and, and, the, and the plow were coming to Mesopotamia and the sail was discovered in Egypt. And what those three little technological advances did for mankind is it allowed us agriculture, trade, and exploration. Okay, so they go like, like that was significant because it, it just changed the life of the most people on the earth. 3300 BC, you have the invention of writing for the first time in China, sorry, in Mesopotamia. And then in 1600, the modern alphabet. So uh, 1600 BC, so we've only had that around a couple of thousand years, three, four thousand years. 3000 BC, we had the creation of currency. The Sumerians first used barley leaves and, uh, as currency, but uh, in 600 BC, we started minting coins. And so that was a significant advancement because people started not just bartering and, and they started a currency, a fiat-based idea, and so it was an interesting moment. 670 BC, we had iron. Ironwork, metallurgy, and so technology and economy and military uh, was suddenly expanded and, and reinforced and that allowed a, a significant movement of people around the earth and all those sorts of things. Number six, 4 BC, which is the birth of Jesus. Never could get over why it's 4 BC because it should be BC, should be zero, but anyway, that's the way it is, right? Um, but, but basically... They said, that's when Jesus was born, and then they, did, they went back and checked it out and said, oh, we were, we're about four years out, so. <laughs> 
105, the first time paper was started to be used instead of animal skins or parchment. And that made a significant difference because now paper became freely available and a lot of people began to write and suddenly ideas were able to be spread and it was an interesting thing. 7.30 in China, printing was invented. Uh, and then the first book, obviously 1455, Gutenberg printed the Bible. And suddenly when books can, could be printed and released, uh, you had this uh, explosion of ideas and uh, learning. 1088 AD, the first university was founded in Bologna, in Italy. The modern concept of higher learning and universal knowledge, which is interesting. And then just to bring it home, 1776, the Declaration of Independence, which is the political evolution of a new world. How about that? We, we made the top 10. I thought I'd just tell you. Of course, we've left out some momentous, important events, battles, people who helped shape the world, things like the Renaissance, which included the Protestant Reformation and the Scientific Revolution, and people like Martin Luther and Columbus and Michelangelo and da Vinci and Bartholomew Dias and Copernicus and Galileo and Isaac Newton and the list goes on. Key people who influenced and moved us downfield in the way we think and live. Feudalism fell, capitalism rose, the acceleration of science, the proliferation of art, the growth of philosophy, the development of societies, the change of languages, the emergence of governments, the growth of religions, these all affected our world in significant ways. I've left out, obviously, world wars, the rise and fall of specific kingdoms, the invention of the petrol-driven car in 19, 1888 by Benz, the silicon chip in 1959, which led to the computer age, in 1960, the first contraceptive pill for women, which changed a lot of women's lives. The question is, when you look at all of these lists, uh, what is the defining factor? How do we look and how do we view what are the key moments in history? What brought the most emancipation? What brought the most freedom, the most life to the most people? And the question then arises, is there some therefore guiding hand on history? If the Persians had defeated the ancient Greeks, for example, or the Carthaginians had destroyed Rome, the classical world would have been entirely different and our life would have been quite significantly altered. So what we put in as history's most consequential events depends on our worldview and on our interest graph usually. But generally speaking, what makes the lists are those events that are foundations for things that are universally useful. The events that laid the foundations for tremendous growth and for freedom for the whole of mankind. And so the best way, in my opinion, therefore, to view history is to view it through God's involvement in it. There is a, a school of theology called Heilsgeschichte. It's God's redemptive work in history. It's obviously a German school. And what, what they really do is they value this idea that if 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 God's holy work in history is the way that you view history, that'll, that'll inform history for you. That'll put it in its context. That'll help you see it accurately. 
So it's God's saving work in history, and it's, a, it's viewing history through a biblical lens. Fundamentally, it's saying that all of creation was created for a specific reason, and that reason was so that God could create us a bride for his son, and so he committed to Jesus all the work of creation so that Jesus could have a hand in creating his bride, and therefore, and then a hand in redeeming his bride so that he could have an eternal consort for all eternity that would take his breath away. And in order for that bride to exist, God had to create a physical universe, and then he had to create a planet, and then he had to create a garden, and then he had to create Adam and Eve. And so this idea that history was born under a presiding purpose, that there is a God who had a dream long before he ever said, let there be light. And that is the fundamental idea that we view history through. And if you understand that, as, as St. Augustine said, if you distinguish the times, it will ha harmonize Scripture for you. If you understand what God was trying to do, suddenly the Scripture makes sense. So when we examine history from this vantage point, it makes a lot of sense from us. Nations, kingdoms, personalities, princes, all come together to work for God's purposes. Some willingly and knowingly, some resistant and in arrogant rebellion, nevertheless used for his plan. Let's take an example. The scripture says, when the time had fully come in Galatians, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. God had needed there to be in the ancient world a system of travel and a consistent language, so he allowed the Greek, Alexander the Great, to conquer a significant portion of the world and to Hellenize a significant portion of the world so there was a common language out of so many different nations. And then the, the Roman Empire took that empire over and created infrastructure and uh, took away all the little uh, po political states that would, that would charge you tax at the border of their little town. And the Romans said, nonsense, none of that. And they created ro roads and freeways. And so when the gospel had, had uh, its moment had come, Paul could get up in one language and travel most of the whole world. Uh, when the time had fully come, God sent his son. God had done a preparation work in the realities of history. So when you understand this, you look at the greatest event in human history is what we're celebrating this weekend right here. That God sent his own son and he had sent him to live a sinless life. And on this weekend, we remember that Jesus sacrificed his own body in order that your sins and my sins could be absorbed in him on the tree. And then he put him to death and then he raised him to life again and seated him at his right hand. This is the culmination of history and of all religion. The excesses and the sacrifices that religion had required, the endless clamor for more and more sacrifice, for, as, even though the sacrifices were temporary and inadequate, as the scripture says. Thousands of years of tradition and prayer and devotion and sacrifice now set to make way for God's culminating triumph the complete victory for fallen mankind. God appeared in his son on the earth. The image of the invisible God, the scripture says. The exact representation of his being, it says in somewhere else. To put an end to this eternal struggle against sin that mankind had got themselves into once and for all. So the question is what kind of God will exchange his glorious dominance 
for a life of suffering servitude? Who empties himself of every glorious attributes and takes on the weakness of human forms? And why would he do that? Which God would take up the responsibility for all the sin, for all time, for all his people on himself? And then deliver a death blow to that sin by taking into himself all of their sin and then letting himself be killed? Who would, would understand beforehand the brutality and the sufferings that lay ahead and then still walk resolute towards that end? The Bible says of Jesus, he set his face like flint to go towards Jerusalem and every step on the way up the hill, he was walking towards Jerusalem about 20 miles and the Bible says he just set his face because he understood with great clarity what awaited him there. What kind of a God would do that and what would motivate him to walk to that inevitable end? It's the kind of love that surpasses that kind of sin. See, his love had to be bigger than the price tag. And the Bible says, because God so loved the world, you, me, everybody, because he loved you, he sent his son to go and make that walk. Because he is love, that's what the Bible teaches. God is love. And his actions are perfectly congruent with his great love. This is love not only for the brightest among us or the holiest or the best performing or the pretty people or the, uh, the, 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 the it crowd. No, God sent his Messiah like a man familiar with sufferings, the Bible says, like one from whom men will hide their faces, like he had no beauty or majesty in him to attract us to him, but he showed God's love for the unlovable the uncomfortable, the awkward, the rebels, the broken, the shameful, the perverse, and the despicable. And I'm included in that bunch. His great love made it inevitable that he would be the savior. Because when he committed to being the creator of all, king, all things, his loving nature made it inevitable that he would also be the savior of everybody who would believe in him. Because he said, I'm gonna create them. And then he looked and he goes, but they're gonna mess up. And I, I know me, my love is gonna take responsibility. So I'm committing to be the savior of all mankind in the exact same moment. And this weekend, we celebrate the greatest single event of human history, the most consequential reality of our existence, that God sent his son to die, to be buried, and to be raised again. And by that one sacrifice, he has exploded and broken the power of sin over anybody who chooses to believe in Jesus Christ. It is. <clears throat> Perfection finally attained. See, religion just kept us going. Let me take you to Hebrews 10. And I'm, I'm, I'm looking at this. The, the book of Hebrews is written to the Jews, to the people who understood the Jewish religion. And the writer to the Hebrews is trying to explain to them because the Jews 
felt like they had been the most religious people on earth. They had obeyed the law. God had given them the law. God had given the law to no one else on the, on the earth. They felt very honored. They felt very singled out. We are God's holy people because God gave us the law. And the problem with that is that God gave them the law just as a temporary measure, as a shadow to whisper to them, a Messiah is coming. But in the meantime, I'm just going to give you this because it'll teach you about him. And they, they thought that that was the whole package. None of them, despite all their devotion and all their effort and all the religious zeal, could attain the fullness of the law. Nobody could obey it. And so they always kept falling short. So God had instituted in the law a sacrificial system that if you fell short, if you didn't make all the standards that you knew you should, you could bring a sacrifice. And that sacrifice would make up the difference between where you were and the standard that God had set. And so that meant that there was an endless sacrifice, parade of sacrifices that had to be made because people kept falling short. Not like us spiritual people. <laughs> but some of the Jews thought that they'd actually made it. And those are the only people that I can see in Jesus' life that he got really, really angry with. Those are the people he rebuked. The people, who, the people who were the quickest to acknowledge, I've really messed up. Jesus loved him. He was the friend of sinners. But he called the Pharisees who said, I've done everything right. He said, you're a bunch of hypocrites. You're full of dead men's bones. Let's go to Hebrews 10. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming and not the realities themselves. The law was just, uh, the, the Greek is, is like an outline. It's like a, it's like a shadow. You can see some shape. It's like you're looking through a glass darkly. You can see somebody on the other side. You can see somebody's in the room. You can see some of the definition, but you can't see it all. The law was only a shadow, the writer says, of the good things that were coming. It was just a whisper. You could, you could okay, stand still. You could draw sort of an outline, but it had no poignancy to it. It had no color in it. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeatedly, endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. That word make perfect is, is this idea that it can never bring you to a place where you can settle, where you can be at peace, where it is finally finished, where, where, where everything you owe is done, where you've paid, where you can relax. It's over, it's made whole, it's settled, it's perfect. The law, the Bible says, could never make anyone perfect. The law could bring no one to that place. It says, and so what, what was necessary, therefore, was this endless parade of sacrifices. Those two. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? If all of those sacrifices could have brought somebody to the place of, okay, I can find rest with God. My, my work is done. God has said, okay, I'll accept that, that you never have to do anything more again. You're, you're in, you're settled, we're friends. I've, I've reached the mark. If the law could do that, why did the, the, the sacrifices continuously have to be made? And that's what the writer says. If, if the law made somebody perfect, there was no need for those sacrifices. For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. This shadowy 
whispered promise that gave us a little bit of hope. It gave us a shadowy outline, the idea that sacrifice was gonna be needed but could never make us perfect. The law, rough and imperfect lines, uh, whereas when we come into the New Testament, the gospel fills all of those out with graphic distinction and living colors. Those sacrifices only were an annual reminder of sins. So much of the church is built on an Old Testament model where you can never find rest. You can never find peace with God. You can never say, there is now, therefore, and for me, no condemnation. You can never say, I have made it. And so everything, everything in the Christian world that drives you away from that place of peace, that drives you into, no, no, there's some more that you can do. You, you're not there yet. God's still a little bit ticked with you. You've got a lot more. You are so far away from the pleasure of God. God can't possibly bless your life. Look at you. Anything that has that tinge to it is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, because Jesus is the fulfillment of the shadow, when Christ came into the world, he said, and he's quoting from a scripture in the Old Testament, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. This is a, a messianic psalm. It's a messianic, messianic prophecy about what Jesus would say when he arrived. And Jesus said, all right, I, even though I understand that God had required these sacrifices, God said at one stage, I find no pleasure in these. My soul is weary because of these sacrifices. Can, can you guys just not live right and you don't have to bring me the sacrifices? I'm tired of the smell of burnt offerings. And man made incense. And so he sent his son and Jesus said, Jesus, understanding fully the moment, said, sacrifices and offerings, those things that are continuously being offered, you don't desire, but you made a body for me. And so I'm standing in the body you prepared for me, and I understand what the role of this body is. Here I am, Lord. I've come to do your will. Surrendered himself to the will of the Father. First he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first, he sets aside all of those sacrifices to establish the second. I want you to not miss that little sentence. This weekend is all about God setting aside all of the devotion, all of the requirements of a religious practice. He sets it aside to establish this principle. He set the first aside to establish the second. And what is the second? Then he said, here I am. I have come to do your will. I have come to live according to the standard. I have come to fulfill the law. I have come to completely fulfill every requirement of the law. And by that will, we have been made holy. Not by your will, 
but by that will. When Jesus said, I understand I have a body, I understand the role that God wants me to play, I have lived a sinless life, and I'm standing in the body, I'm here, Father. I have come to do your will. I offer this body to you, and by that will, you have been made holy. God set aside all of the old covenant where it's by your will and by your effort and by your energy that you are made holy because nobody was. By that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Can I just say, Jesus is not coming back to be sacrificed again. Next time Jesus comes back to this planet, he's coming back crowned the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He's not coming back as a suffering servant. He's not coming back to a lowly manger. He's coming back with great glory. And every eye will see him. And and some people are not really gonna say to the mountains, please fall on us, because that would be preferable. Hide us from the glory of this King. Day after day, Every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. All of those priests were offering imperfect temporary sacrifices and therefore could never sit down. Their work was never done, constantly having to repeat the same thing. But when this priest offered for all time one perfect sacrifice that was accepted completely, he sat down. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. That phrase in the Greek uh, could mean either because of the process of the ongoing holiness that is being created in your life, or, which is what I believe, is by the repetition of so many people who are being made holy as they get born again. We read it again. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being born again. If you have entered the covenant with Jesus Christ, let me just say this to you. By that one sacrifice that we, sacri- that we celebrate this weekend, by one sacrifice, You were made perfect, which the Bible says the law could never do. The law could never make anybody perfect. But by one sacrifice of his own body and his own will, you have been made perfect forever. So you can find peace with God. You can find joy in your salvation. You can find space to run. You can find friendship. You can find devotion. You can find spiritual sacrifice. You can do all of the things that the scriptures allude to without fear and without effort. Jesus put sinful people 
into perfect religious relationship with God by one sacrifice. That is a state that you're in, not something you have to attain. Verse 15. I'm just trying to read through this passage of Scripture. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, this is the covenant I'll make with them after that time, says the Lord. I'll put my law in their hearts and I'll write them on their minds. That's what the Holy Spirit prophesied in Jeremiah 31. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless acts, I will remember no more. Oh, that's just like, I don't know about you, maybe some of you are not that bad sinners, because maybe some of you are just, for me, that's like music to my soul. The one who's been forgiven much loves much, Jesus said. It's 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 like a sweetness to my soul. By one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who come into faith. And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. That is so much better. That's the good news of the gospel. That's not the bad news of religion. That's good news. And he said, this is the covenant I'll make with them. You have to enter this covenant. You have to say, I want to become a covenant partner with this God. But when we enter this covenant with Jesus, we are made perfect forever. We're brought into a state where God finds us wholly acceptable. Because he has translated us from a state of unholy alienation into a state of consecration to God. Without any more conscience or, or, or consequences of sin, We have been made perfect forever and our sins and lawless deeds are wholly wiped away. And then God raised him from the dead just to cement the deal because God wanted your faith, the, the, the pinnacle and the foundation pin of all of our faith rests on a supernatural event. It's not just theory. It's not just theology. It is the power of God that lies at the very center and at the very foundation of anybody's faith. We must believe God raised Jesus from the dead. And if I believe that, I'll say, Lord, I want to believe in Jesus. Would you raise me too? This idea of the gospel, that everywhere the gospel was preached, this understanding of the resurrection of Jesus was a central facet of every time they preached. Let me just show you this. In Acts 2, the first great gospel presentation after the Holy Spirit comes down at the Feast of Pentecost, Peter gets up and he says this, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did among you uh, through him, as you yourselves know. Because everybody in Jerusalem at that time knew Jesus had done miracles. It was undeniable. And he says, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. This centrality of the resurrection was all over the scriptures. 
Come with me to Acts 10. The first time Peter's preaching to a Gentile audience. He says, we are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead and on the third day and caused him to be seen. And he was seen by all the people by witnesses whom God had already chosen by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. The first time Paul is preaching in, in, in Europe, in, the, in that, whole Asia, that, that whole Asia Minor area, Acts 13, and this is Paul preaching. Though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should put him to death. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree, laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. And he was seen for many days. Here's the, the basic question. How do I respond to the greatest event in history? How do I respond to the absolute central issue, the culminating moment of all of human history? The most consequential event in human history is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus the Christ. So how can we respond? How should we respond? The most amazing thing is that God has set it up like this. He doesn't require us to do a long and elaborate set of tasks. He doesn't set us mammoth quests that you have to accomplish before he'll see you as worthy. God has taken away all of that responsibility in you. What he's done is he said, okay, I'm gonna just put that all to the side. That's just a shadow. What I'm going to do is I'm going to send people to tell you the good news. And the good news is that it's by my will and by my son's actions and by him dying and me raising him that anybody who believes that good news, I will give you eternal life and I'll give you my righteousness and I'll give you an intimate relationship with me and I'll give you victory. It's a free gift. It's not of yourselves so that none of you can boast. It's by grace through faith and that's the whole package. So I'm gonna get people and I'm gonna tell them go out and tell this good news and anybody, 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 anywhere who believes, I'll meet with him. That's why prostitutes and tax collectors and reprobates were coming into the kingdom before the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees could not get over that it's that good. No, no. You have to fast for 40 days. Yeah, you have to whip yourself. You have to go on three pilgrimages. Corinthians says, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not choose to know him. So God was pleased through the foolishness of what is preached to save those who believe. Jews demand a sign. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. 
stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews or Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Greg, what should I do? How can I respond well to the most consequential moment of history? I just want to dare you. I, I dare you to believe that it's that good, that God is that kind, that his work is that complete. And when you believe, when you believe, he translates you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the son that he loves, the kingdom of light, and everything becomes near. Some of you who have already done that have forgotten that this was just a good reminder for you. I dare you to believe again for good things. But if you've never accepted Jesus, I'm gonna pray a prayer right now. Simple, easy. Prayer's not the magic. The magic happens when you just say, I believe. I believe. And if you'll do that in your heart, you'll start a brand new life with Jesus. Let me pray. If you wanna do that, you pray this prayer with me. Lord, I come to you. I'm just amazed that God would step into human history as a human being. I'm amazed that you would take all my brokenness and shame and sin, suffering, weakness, sickness, and you put an end to it at the cross. And I believe, Father, that Jesus died for me. I believe that you raised him from the dead. And I want to know you. Forgive me. Cleanse me. Let me know you. Draw me to yourself. Let me get to know you. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you pray the prayer, you're gonna meet Tyler outside and uh, there'll be a, and a couple of people in the lobby and we'd, they would just love to meet with you and bless you. We're just gonna worship the Lord just to say thank you that he's that good. And I'm gonna invite you to stand with us as we worship the Lord and would you bring him the glory that's due to his name, amen. And life is worth the living just because He 
you believe that? How sweet to hold our newborn baby and feel the pride and joy he gives, but greater still the calm assurance this child can face uncertain days because he lives, because he lives. I can face tomorrow because he lives. All fear is gone because I know he holds the future and life is worth and then one day I'll cross that river I'll fight life's fine war with pain and then as death 